everyone. I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction, a podcast channel in the New Books Network. Today I'm speaking with Adrian Selt about Invitation to a Bonfire, which looks at what we might call the long arm of the Russian Revolution of October 1917. Called a tense psychological thriller and deft character study by the Chicago Tribune, and selected as one of O's top books of summer, Invitation to a Bonfire released in paperback just last month. It's the 1920s and Zoya Andropova, a Moscow girl from a peasant family, should have nothing to fear from the new Bolshevik government. Her father is a strong supporter of the revolution, and socially her family couldn't be better positioned to benefit from the overthrow of the Tsar and the nobility. If things don't work out as planned, and Zoya finds herself on a boat for the United States. What happens when she gets there leads her in directions she could never have imagined, when she was a girl spending summers picking sugar beets with her parents. Before we meet Zoya, though, we encounter some background information about the story we're about to read. Fictional background, I mean. A note on the text. This collection of papers was assembled as a product of the Dunn School Alumni Society of Goslings, from Statewide Archives, 1984. The project was funded by a posthumous grant from one of the Dunn School's most generous benefactors, Mrs. Vera Orlov, née Volkov, who wished, she said, for the research to make a definitive historical mark. After the tragic death of her husband, the writer Leo Orlov, who taught briefly at the Dunn School in the days preceding his murder in 1931, Mrs. Orlov returned to her family home in France, but remained a dedicated supporter of the school. The section of Mrs. Orlov's will that earmarked this money for the Society of Goslings also bequeathed a number of documents, many still in probate. One important document, however, arrived alongside the funding, a diary seemingly written by the young Dunn School employee, Zoe Andropov, who died under hotly debated circumstances the same year as Mr. Orlov. Its presence in Mrs. Orlov's possessions remains a point of inquiry, especially as documentation about Mrs. Orlov herself remains in such short supply. And now, please join me in welcoming Adrian Selt. Hi, Adrian. Thank you for agreeing to talk with me today. Hi, my pleasure. You maintain an ongoing webcomic, Love Among the Lampreys, uh, which is a great title, by the way, uh, as well as <laughs> writing fiction. Uh, how did you get into these two related fields, and how do you juggle them? Well, the webcomic was something I started doing in grad school. I had actually in college drawn a similar sort of zygotic version of, of the strip um, for our, our college newspaper. And I, I, I did it there because they would pay you $20 for any comic strip you drew. And it didn't, there were no quality guidelines. There were no content guidelines. And I needed $20. Um, and I found that I really enjoyed it. And so in grad school, I started doing the same thing again. And my husband recommended that I put it online because I could and it would be easy. Uh, and it, it came to be this outside discipline that really balanced out my creative work, especially during graduate school. You have workshops all the time. You're turning in work to professors. And there's just this constant sense of observation and feedback. And I liked having an outlet that was it was okay to mess up in. So I could just do whatever I wanted. I could say whatever I wanted. And if one week it wasn't perfect, it didn't matter because I was going to come back to it the next week. And 
I could grow over time without that sense of, uh, of oversight. Um, and now I have, it's really grown to be part of my artistic identity. And I think I've, I've improved over time and it's come to be more meaningful to me. Um, and I, I maintain the practice by having one designated day a week when I draw the comic, which is usually Sunday and just, and having a strict schedule to anytime I have a comic ready, I post it on Wednesday and I've, I've added that I now repackage the same content as a tiny letter for anyone who wants to. So tinyletter.com slash C E L T A D R I. If you're interested in getting a comic and a little essay every Wednesday or so. Um, and I, it's a way to access something in my creative subconscious that isn't as verbal or as conceptual. And that is, is the sort of relaxation that keeps the creative spark awakened. So when you were in grad school, were you learning to write fiction? Yes, I was in grad school for fiction. Um, I went to Arizona State University and I had a really great time there. It's a small, very supportive program. So there were only five fiction writers and five poets in my year. And so we were, we were very close-knit. And when did you decide that you wanted to write fiction? I feel like my answer to that is one of those standards I think I always knew or from childhood, which I don't know why that sounds precious to me, but it's also very true. <laughs> um, and it's not precious. It's kind of wonderful to have known what you want to do for your entire life. I, I didn't study creative writing in college. I was a double major in philosophy and Russian language. But part of the reason that I studied those things besides genuine interest, in high school, a mentor figure suggested that I study something other than creative writing in college so that I would have more of a subject. I wanted to develop my intellect in other directions and develop other interests that I could write about while I was in college. Um, and it, after, after college, I worked for Google and I lived in the Bay Area and then Chicago for a few years. And it was during that time that I, it, it became clear to me that, I, that, was, that writing was something that I wanted to devote myself to. Um, I took classes, I, one at the Stanford Extension School and then a couple at a, a great studio called Story Studio in Chicago um, that gave me a little bit of discipline while I was still working a full-time job. But even though it was important to me to take that time out from school, I had been kind of burnt out after college, it was really, it, it also clarified to me that I wanted to go back to school and, and I wanted to study and I wanted to get better. I, I don't think an MFA in writing is necessary for anyone who wants to write. But for me, it was an opportunity to take myself seriously and take the study of craft seriously. So, so it was a really wonderful opportunity. That's wonderful. So in 2015, you published your debut novel, uh, The Daughters, which won several awards, including the NPR Best Book of the Year. So tell us a little bit about that story and how you came to write it. So The Daughters is the story of a woman, an operatic soprano named Lulu, who was raised, she lives in Chicago, and she was raised by her grandmother, Ada, to believe that their family has a mythological origin, that back in Poland, which is where they come from, um, one of their, an their, their ancestors made a deal with the devil so that all of the women in their family would be progressively beautiful and progressively mu musically talented at a price. 
So every generation gets an increase in these gifts and every generation has their own cost to pay. Um, and when she's a child, Lulu really believes these things. But when she, as, as she grows up, it, she questions them. And also her mother is there for, her, for a lot of her youth. And her mother is more realistic. She's a jazz singer and she's a, she's a sort of dark figure in Lulu's life. And she tells her the story that the stories that her grandmother tells are in fact to cover up this survivor's guilt from being the only one to escape World War II alive in their family. Um, so Lulu is grappling with what she believes. And now that she has had her own first child, whether she is going to lose something and how much she has to, how much faith she has to put in those stories herself. Um, and I came to that story partially because I, I have a lot of Polish heritage and I was interested in exploring some of the Polish myths and the, the countries, countries, not only their mythology, but Poland has a really fascinating history. Just if you look at a map of Poland over time, you can see it. It, it starts out enormous and then it shrinks down to nothing and then it grows again and it sort of grows and shrinks like a heartbeat. Um, and you can feel that in the history of the Polish people and in sort of the character of the Polish people, which, I mean, right now Poland is in a very tumultuous and problematic state, but there is a lot of, there has been a lot of good and a lot of bad uh, all, all mixed up together. And I was interested in what that meant for me and what that meant for my family. And the way I approached that was this, was that story, you know, the story of that novel but I first wrote it as a short story in, when I was in grad school. And when I workshopped it, everyone said, this is interesting and we think there's something there, but you, the shape you put it into is way too small. Um, and I, I knew right away that they were right. So I, I started working on it as a novella and then as a novel. And what took you from there, other than your study of Russian language, to the story of Zoya, Lief, and Vera? When I was in college, so Nabokov, Vladimir Nabokov is the inspiration for that novel. And I have, I've loved him since I started reading his work when I was in college. I took a seminar on his novels in graduate or in college um, as an graduate. And at that time, if you read Nabokov's work, he's not only this beautiful stylist and very moving uh, ethical historical writer, he also sort of comes off as a controlling jerk. <laughs> um, and I don't mean that just as a, as a person. I mean that as, uh, as, a, as a novelist, as the writer sort of God controlling his characters. And I think he's pretty open about that. He, uh, he, he famously said that only Panin from his novel Panin and Lolita from the novel Lolita who are these two fairly abject characters. They're the only characters he ever wrote who he respected because they escaped the boundaries of the story that he was telling. And so that weird controlling element of his life and the fact that his wife, Vera, was known to be this, this sort of ur-wife of artistic wives who did everything for him, licked his stamps, carried the umbrella, taught, helped, you know, taught his classes, 
did did she just did so much heavy lifting for him in order to allow him his artistic freedom to be complete i i really i found that problematic and troubling and interesting and then while during that that seminar um there a journalist came to visit our class who had actually met the Nabokovs in person and he told us this story about just he, he painted a picture of a man who truly loved and respected his wife and who knew what she, what he had in this artistic partner and i found that really meaningful i wanted i wanted to believe that that was true because there are so many great men in art and in history who just don't who who accomplished something in one field and then did something terrible in another field and it i wanted to believe that there was somebody uncomplicated who i could love even though he presents himself as a very complicated man in his work. And so anyway, I did. I did for many years. I, I, I let myself believe that for many, many years. And to be clear, I still, he's still one of my very favorite writers, and he always will be. Um, but later on, I read this review of the collected letters of Nabokov and Vera, and it mentioned the fact that he had an affair. And I just thought, What? <laughs> And it really, it, he had probably several affairs and I, it, it really cracked open the idea of him as this man who, who trusted and loved his wife. Uh, he, he almost left her for another woman. And I, I just took it so personally, even though it, this information had always been out there for me to know if I had wanted to know it. It's not, nobody promised me anything. Nobody took anything away from me, but it felt like a really personal uh, awakening. and. At the same time, I was really interested in the description of of who Vera was in in the way that she wanted her image to be sort of projected through history, because she the, what the what the review of that collect, that collection said essentially was that Vera's path was really scant because she destroyed all her own letters. She would mark like black out the parts that she wrote on postcards. She really wanted to focus history on her husband's words and her husband's words alone. Uh, and I thought this is, uh, this is such a fascinating thing for a woman to do. She was also educated and beautiful and intelligent. And it's one thing to, especially within the historical context, say I'm willing to devote myself to my artistic husband's life. And it's another thing to say, I'm going to completely erase myself as much as I possibly can. It's just, it didn't feel submissive or passive to me. It felt like a very active choice. So that, that was the moment when I started thinking about, about that story. Yes, I think I read that review as well. And I was very struck by it too, because it's, it's almost a, a control. I mean, they, they both seem to have been control freaks, frankly, um, Yes, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so let's start with Zoya, who I'm guessing is the most fictional of the three, at least based on what I remember of the description of the, the mistress in that particular correspondence. Um, and actually, even before we get to her, you make no secret at the beginning that this tale includes a murder and a mysterious death. And so why did you spill those particular beans right away? Because that is not part of the Nabokov story. Correct. Nabokov was not murdered. <laughs> um, I I wanted to let it be known from the beginning that he would be that he would die to create a sense of tension of how it was going to happen, because 
if you begin the story only with Zoya, it it looks only like a love story, and it is a love story. It's a, the story of a, of a love triangle between uh, the character Lev, who is the one most closely inspired by Nabokov, his wife Vera, who is obviously inspired by Vera, although both of them are heavily fictionalized as well, <laughs> um, and. And Zoya, who is this young woman who comes from the Soviet Union, she is an emigre and an exile like like the Orlovs, who are the Nabokovs in the novel. But she she was poor. She comes from an abject background, whereas they come from an aristocratic background. Um, so I didn't just want there. There, there is a, a strong tension of desire and um, and and attraction and. But there's also a strong tension of ambition and who gets to control the narrative, who gets to have the power in a relationship and in the world uh, that is running through the novel. And I wanted, to, I wanted to hint that that would be the case even right from the beginning, because we start with Zoya in her childhood, in her, um, in her history, in the way that she makes her way to America and if you only were reading that, hopefully you would fall in love with Zoya, but you wouldn't know that the Orlovs were coming and you wouldn't know that there was this mystery that all of this was building up to. So I wanted to drop that information from the beginning so you would always be watching, what, watching for signs of what might be to come. Yes, I thought it was very effective. Um, so fill us in a little bit more about Zoya and how she meets uh, Lea Orlov. All right. So Zoya Andropova is, or Zoe Andropov, as she's called in America, is a young woman who is raised, like I said, as a peasant in Moscow. Um, and she and her family have some, somewhat escaped the peasant system. They're not indentured to the land, but they continue to go in, in order to have enough money to live and help um, harvest sugar beets. And they're really living hand to mouth, very abjectly and so her father who is a philosophical political thinker helps orchestrate the russian revolution he's a, a key figure um or at least as far as zoya knows because she's a child when all of this happens and it it hugely increases their their uh their, their standing in the world they they get a better apartment they get better food suddenly she is not she, she's not going to bed hungry and so Zoya becomes a very staunch believer in the Soviet Union and the fairness of the Soviet Union because she only knows the upsides. Um, and when her father and her mother both die, because if you know anything about the rise of the Soviet Union, you know that it was pretty lethal for the people involved unless they were good at navigating the politics of the situation. Uh, she, so she ends up as an orphan who is then rescued and rescued by the Americans or you know, dubiously rescued, <laughs> taken out of the orphanage, brought to New Jersey, where she is put into a, a girls, an upscale girls' school. And as as she goes through her last couple of years of high school at this school, she finds herself in a completely new system. Now she doesn't have the Soviet Union. Nobody here believes in it. Nobody is a fan of it. At least among the very rich girls that she is that she's studying with. And she is seen as an outsider on every possible level. She doesn't, she doesn't speak the language very well at first. She has an accent she has to er eradicate. She doesn't have any money. She doesn't, have, she doesn't understand 
the sort of lure of the capitalist system that we all, at least as Americans, grow up with in our blood. You know, she's she's built of other pieces. Um, so she, she has a sort of violent and upsetting experience and then has has to build herself back up as a human being. Um, so Zoya, her sense of identity is a big and evolving part of the story. And later on, she gets a job as the gardener of a, like managing a, a very upscale greenhouse for the school because she has nowhere else to go after college, after, after uh, high school ends. And that's when Lev Orlov comes to the school with his wife and as, as a writer in residence, essentially. And that's where they meet. And she's already been a fan of his novels. So when he shows up, it's sort of this magical, this, you know, momentous meeting where this figure from her intellectual life is suddenly in her physical space. Um, and that's a really magnetic and magical moment for her. So you're a writer and Lyof Orlov is a writer and based on the writer Nabokov. Uh, it must have been kind of fun for you to approach this character. Uh, how did you and what kind of writer, What? how do you see Lyof as a character? Uh, Lyof was really fun to write. He was actually the, one of the early... His voice comes through the novel primarily through letters. So the structure of the novel is a collection of papers, and it's uh, Zoya's diary, Lyof's letters to, to Vera, and then little false documents, art, newspaper articles, police records, things like that. Um, and his first letter was the first thing that I wrote in the novel. And I just, he just came to me so naturally. I, it's, it's a tone and a stance and a style that's inspired by Nabokov's writings. And it, I don't know, it just flowed from me. I have always felt a sympathetic tenderness to Nabokov's writing because I'm also, I, I believe in style in, in art as not just, you know, window dressing. I think that the way that a book is constructed and the way that the language portrays the story is an essential part of what that world is and what, what the meaning of it is, what, um, what the heart of it is. And so writing, allowing myself to write in a style that was so directly inspired by somebody who I admire and who is known to be a stylist really let me, let me free <laughs> to be, to be, to, to write, um, to write the way that I wanted to write and to write in a way that was enjoyable and a little bit deeply within myself, but also a little bit outside of myself. Um, and yeah, it was invigorating, I guess, is the answer to that question. Um, and he, as a person, is very, he's complicated. <laughs> he's really full of himself. And I, again, really need to emphasize that he's not directly Nabokov. He's his own person, um, because I, I, could, I create a world of, of moments and realities that I couldn't possibly have known from history. And I didn't, I didn't want to try to draw them all specifically from Nabokov's experience. Um, so he, he's very self-confident. He's very sure of the, the impact that his art is going to have in the world. I made him a science fiction writer because I thought that would be an interesting divergence uh, from Nabokov's actual, actual art. And yet he's not, he's not that savvy. He thinks he's really savvy, but he's not. <laughs> and he is deeply influenced by his wife, Vera, 
and essentially under under her thumb she she is controlling and orchestrating the the direction of their lives to a greater degree than he's aware of but he knows enough to know that he owes her a lot so let's talk about vera um She's quite a character too, and uh, I'm guessing, I mean, in some ways she's obviously uh, drawing on Vera Nabokova, uh, including some instances where they meet and things like that. But she's really, I assume, not, I mean, especially since Vera <laughs> made it her mission in life to make sure that people knew as little about her as possible. I think we can assume that your Vera is not necessarily that Vera. So tell us about her. Yes, she's definitely not Vera Nabokova. (laughs) Vera Orlova is... So she was my take on one way, that one reason a person might take the actions that Vera Nabokova took. Um, So she comes... Vera Orlova, uh, her her maiden name was Vera Volkova, which translates in Volkova in Russian means she wolf essentially, <laughs> and um, that is that sort of predatory canine canniness is is a big part of her character. She she knows that she's brilliant. She knows that she's powerful, but she really functions best behind the scenes. She likes to be she likes to be the puppet master. I guess is a way to put it that that maybe sound, sound makes her sound a little less subtle than she actually is, but she she meets Lev and she falls in love with his his artistic potential, but she also sees in him the potential to mold someone to 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 the um, to the person that she believes he can be and to the person that she believes she can create essentially. Um, so one I. I I think that you could you can encounter the Vera that I wrote in this novel um, a number of different ways, depending on who you as a reader are. And she is still, I would say, the character who's the greatest cipher in the novel, even though she's much more revealed than Vera Nabokova was or you know would be through those collected letters. She 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 doesn't come she doesn't have a, a very strong first person voice in the book, um, but to me. Yeah, that's to me. She is is there to to build a, a a type of power, a type of feminine power that was possible for her, and I think that she enjoys that mystique, the shadow presence. The it, it has almost a spiritual cast for her. You know, the sense that we don't know what's going on in the world. We don't truly know what the power is that's propelling the world forward, and it, because it's hidden, it's hidden behind the veil of everyday things and for her that makes her feel almost godlike at least in my mind (laughs) and she has a bit a very small bit uh of past with uh, zoya which zoya remembers and vera it's not clear whether she really doesn't remember it or whether she's just denying it because she doesn't want to believe that it was true can you tell us a bit about that yeah so when they were children uh, Zoya was a part, a member of the Red Pioneers or the Young Pioneers, to, which it was a youth Soviet organization that sort of led you towards becoming a member of the Communist Party. Uh, anyone who's a Russian studies major and knows the cartoon Cheburashka 
they will know that Jabarashka and Crocodilo Guiana were spent some time with the Red Pioneers. So they're sort of Girl Scouts or Boy Scouts, depending on depending on your gender. Um, and so for Zoya, that was you know that was an important part of her upbringing. It was part of the society she aimed to take part in and perhaps even be a leader in. Um, but for Vera, who was coming from the, the aristocratic side of the world, it was some place that she was probably placed out of desperation or out of an attempt to make good with a society that was no longer working for her family. Um, and she only shows up once and she takes part in a game with Zoya that where you, you begin to see Zoya latching on to the fact that Vera has this power and charisma uh, that Zoya at that point especially does not have. And she, so she sort of follows her and watches what she does and tries to emulate it a little bit or like touch that vibrating, sparking sense of power. But Vera sees what she's doing and doesn't like it and just essentially disappears from her life for the next many years until she shows up again with her husband at the Dunn School in New Jersey. So I didn't read far enough into the opening for this to be clear to our listeners, but the book, you did hint at it a little bit. Um, The book alternates between Zoya's diary and Lief's letters to his wife. And so as a result, we see him presenting himself to Viera in ways that directly contradict how Zoya is portraying him in her diary and her relationship with him. What made you decide to, to approach the story in this way? It's also why we don't have a clear sense of Vera, because she, she's, her point of view is not included. It was important to me that Lev, what, he, he's such a lover with Zoya. He really presents himself as someone deeply infatuated with her. But it's important that, he, that, that we know that he is actually as deeply infatuated with Vera as he is with Zoya. And Zoya becomes aware of that, too, over the course of the novel. But at, at first, we had the dissonance between what he tells to one person and what he tells to another person is a very important part of Lev's character and also Zoya's experience with the world, that it's possible to develop, um, that it's possible to develop one identity that is, uh, that is different from... The, the strong identity that you present to another person. I'm not sure how much farther we can go into the story without giving away the really marvelous ending, which I wouldn't dream of spoiling because we want people to read the book. We've already talked a little bit about Nabokov and how he is related to the story. Uh, did you feel that you needed to research his life as part of this preparation for this book? I So because I had studied him in the past and because I had read a lot of his work in the past, I didn't, I didn't do a ton of uh, historical research because I didn't want, I, I specifically wanted the book to be inspired by his life and not based on his life. So it takes, you know, it, it's the soul of the novel takes pieces from his, his personal historical story, but it also takes pieces from his artistic legacy which is, I think, essentially how he wanted to be seen in the world. I'm not saying he would be happy to be the the inspiration for a novel that he had no control over. He would probably be very mad. (laughs) But to me, that felt like the truest response to to my relationship with him. Um, So I 
I, I did do the, the historical research that I did do was to check dates um, to make sure that I could that I, the, that the times that the characters were born would correspond correctly to elements times of the various re- Russian revolutions um, and to when they could be in America experiencing particular things. Um, but I I didn't I specifically didn't read that book of collected letters, for example, because I didn't want to. I didn't want to give the sense that I was basing the the occurrences in the novel on occurrences from his actual life. So yes, he did have an affair with an emigre, but she wasn't a, a girl at a you know at, at a girls' school. She was a, I believe she was a dog groomer. Yeah, something like that, and a, a divorcee, or definitely an older woman than Zoya. Yeah, absolutely. And to, to me, that was important because I just wanted to be free to explore the story as it came to me. Um, and it, it would always be inflected by what I knew of Nabokov and what I knew of, of his history and what I knew of his novels. But it would not be pinned down to being specifically historical in that way. And I did, so I did reread, I reread Tanin, I reread Lolita, maybe a couple of others. But that was, that was all. Got it. So what would you like readers to take away from Invitation to a Bonfire? Hopefully they will enjoy the, the fire of the story. And that's a sort of a pun, but also not a pun. Um, but I, for me, the, the, the idea of somebody's identity and their artistic power as being, uh, as being something potentially formative or in, formative in the sense that they can form it is very, is, was very key to me as I was writing. Um, I started writing this novel before the 2016 election and I revised it after the 2016 election. So the Zoya's relationship to Russia and her, and the Soviet union and America as concepts and, and political realities and political personalities um, became very important to me as well. I spent a lot of time thinking about what it means to believe in the ability to buy things for yourself, the the ability to buy a life for yourself, and what it means to to have to build a life uh, through your actions, through your choices. Um, So, so all of that is 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 those are all things that I hope that the reader feels and is able to think about, but. Overall, I think that every reader is going to experience the novel in their own way. Um, and I, I, I would be interested to hear what all of those ways are. Um, I, I wouldn't want to dictate. So um, this book has just come out in paperback, um, which brings me to my traditional last question. Uh, what are you working on now? Do you already have another project? I am. I'm working on a new novel, and I'm working on the very beginnings of a graphic novel, but they're both in sort of personal places still. <laughs> so I can't, I don't like to talk about my work when it's still being formed because I don't want to scare it. Okay, very good. Thank you so much for sharing your time with us today, Adrian. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure too. And actually, fun fact, today is the day that uh, Invitation to a Bonfire comes out in paperback in the UK. So this is actually its paperback release day as we speak right now. Oh, that's extra cool. I didn't realize that because it came out in the U.S. in the end of May, right? Yeah, yes, it did. I didn't realize it either when we were setting this up, but it was a happy accident. 
Okay, great. Well, happy paperback release in the UK day. (laughs) Thank you. And thank you for listening to our podcast. Once again, I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books and Historical Fiction, a podcast channel in the New Books Network. And today I've been talking with Adrienne Selt about Invitation to a Bonfire. Find out more about her at www.adrienselt.com. If you enjoyed today's podcast and would like to discuss it further with me and other New Books Network listeners, please join us on Shuffle. Shuffle is an ad-free, invite-only network focused on the creative community. As NBN listeners, you can get special access to conversations with a dynamic community of writers and literary enthusiasts. Sign up by going to www.shuffle.do slash nbn slash join. Like us on Facebook, search for NB Historical Fiction, and follow us on Twitter at New Books Histvic. If you do, you'll see each time we post a new interview. You can find out more about me and my books at www.cplesley.com, where I upload expanded posts about the interviews and in general discuss history, historical fiction, and the rapidly changing publishing industry. Goodbye until my next conversation about historical fiction on the New Books Network.